my friends, what's going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 260, baby. We are at 260, but more than that, man, we have just crossed a whole new threshold. We've ended October, we've moved into November, we had Halloween on Monday, and now we've got Thanksgiving coming down the pipeline, then the birth of Jesus, all kinds of stuff going on. But nestled in the midst of that was another lesser known holiday. Some people know it, some people don't, but I was seeing a number of my Christian friends posting about it on Halloween or on October 31st. Uh, And uh, on social media, I decided to poke fun at said holiday a little bit. And I think I'm one of the only guys that falls into the reformed camp, or maybe I should say I'm reformed-ish nowadays. I'm Calvin-ish, probably more than Calvinistic in some ways. Um, But I saw a lot of people celebrating this particular holiday, and I poked fun at this holiday knowing that I'm a part of that tradition. And so I thought for the podcast this week, instead of doing my typical everyday mission, stuff. I would do another like uh, Theo Geek edition a little bit here and kind of talk about why I poked fun at said holiday. Now, for those who may not be aware, October 31st is also the annual commemoration of what we call Reformation Day. And uh, Reformation Day points back to 1517 when Martin Luther tacked the 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And from that, man, this whole great schism emerges. We have Protestant Christianity and therefore me as clergy can marry because, man, all this stuff went down. How great is that, right? Well, there's a lot more to the story and there's a lot more to why I kind of poke fun at Reformation Day. And part of this is, listen, I love history. I love reality. I love communicating history as well as we can. And I don't love fiction. And I don't like when we kind of do this confluence of one event happened and we turn it into commemorative of another event and they're not quite as related as we think. And then there's a assumptions made. And then from that, Matt has to go online and make fun of stuff. So that's kind of what this is a little bit all about. So to give you a little bit of the backstory to this, um, back in 1517, October 31st, 1517, we know that Martin Luther uh, attacked the 95 theses to the door, right? And a lot of assumptions that people have is that those 95 statements that he made were directly related to kind of this assault on the Catholic Church. Like, here's this dude. He is, you know, a part of the system. And one day he decides, you know what? Enough's enough. I'm tired of the oppression. I'm tired of the Pope. I'm tired of all this extra biblical stuff. I'm going to war, baby. And he straps on and everything else and writes out his 95 points on grace and faith and scripture and Christ and all, you know, like all this stuff. Like, he just created a systematic theology to dismantle the Catholic church. And then he rolls in and he bangs it on the door like, all right, fellas, boom, just blew that up. You guys don't understand all the dynamics of what the true gospel is all about. And I just jammed it in your face and dropped the mic. That's not at all what the 95 theses are really about. Maybe in time, some of the ideas that are there bloom into what Luther kind of eventually kind of puts together as a working doctrine that opposes the Catholic Church. But when he rolls in on this particular date, at this particular time, with this particular document, uh, most of those ideas are not what's there. And that's the thing I want to highlight, because when people are showing pictures of Luther tagging the door, and then they're talking about sola scriptura and sola fide and sola grata, which is scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, 
Uh, that, those are some of the tenets that get born down the road with Luther and the reformers. Um, but but when he does that on that day, that's not really the focus, all right? So to give you a sense of this a little bit, and here's my encouragement to you, uh, go online and just type in 95 Theses English Translation and go ahead and read that listing, right? And as soon as you read it, you will feel like you just entered into the middle of a story where you don't know how it began, what's going on, who the cast of characters are, and a lot of it's going to feel very foreign, all right? And it's going to feel foreign because when Luther does this, A, he's not attacking the Catholic Church, B, he's very Catholic at the time he writes this, and C, it's very particular to a singular issue. And if I add a D, I would add the D of he is heretical when he writes this as well. If we're saying that the Catholic Church had heresies, he endorses some of the heresy in the 95 Theses. And so it's not about the stuff that eventually becomes the Reformation. This is kind of like uh, he's putting a memo up saying, hey, fellas, can we talk about something that we all kind of agree on in part, but we don't agree on fully. And here's some of the problems I'm seeing with this. I'm not looking to pick a fight. I'm looking to work through some stuff. And that's part of understanding this. Like when somebody would tack an idea on the door of the church, it wasn't like a throwdown. It wasn't graffiti for the 15th century, you know, it was just like, hey, how about we float this out there? Because part of this is like the academy, and maybe this is a good way to even bring you into a reality that I think the average churchgoer doesn't fully understand. And it's kind of this notion that... Um, in the academy, right? So at the collegiate level, and I don't, I'm not going to see the undergraduate level. I'm going to say the postgraduate level. Uh, there are a lot of discussions that happen there, and they can happen there because it's a safe place to have discussions that might be uncomfortable, awkward, divisive, even or unpopular. But you can work those things out there without the fear of backlash or branding or whatever else. It's like, hey, you know, like in in the postgraduate world, especially in a postgraduate world where I'm going to use the theology model, for example, here, like the theological academy. Um, you can talk about the merits of hell. You can talk about the nature of justification and salvation. You can talk about what does it mean to be saved by grace versus expectations of works that flow out of it. And you can get into some pretty sticky stuff that might be uncomfortable for the average churchgoer, but you can talk about it in the academy because you know what? That's what the academy's for. It's to work through problems without fear of retaliation. Um, and in the same way, when Luther does what he does on this day, he's not thinking about, oh, there's going to be a much retaliation, a big problem. He's just like, I see a problem. We got to work it out. And the problem he saw was not salvation by grace through faith. It was not the authority of the Catholic Church, which to kind of give a sense of perspective there, uh, the Catholic Church believes that there are two sources of authority. They believe it's scripture and the church where Protestants eventually, when the whole Protestant thing happens, we go, no, it's not scripture in church. It's just scripture, which is why we have this term sola scriptura or scripture alone. It was in, in response to the church that said, no, it's the church and scripture. That's the two sources of authority. We said, no, the Bible's our only source of authority as Protestants, right? So that gives you a sense of a lot of the phrases and statements that come into play are responsive phrases. They're not born out of a vacuum. They're not even purely just biblical. It's like, no, they're being stated against something else. And so that's the nature of what's going on. And so when Luther does this in 1517, 
He's not thinking about any of those things. He's thinking about one thing, and the thing is indulgences, right? So if you're not familiar with an indulgence, basically what it means is when somebody dies, their loved one or somebody connected to them could pay money to get basically a type of purgatory pardon so their loved one who may be in purgatory could be sprung from purgatory and into heaven. And so there was this um, Catholic theology of purgatory. So um, when one dies, they may not be totally justified yet. They're growing to a state of being completely completely forgiven by God. Let's put it that way. Completely seen as righteous in the sight of God. They're growing into that in this life. They die before they reach that mark. And so because of that, they end up in purgatory, which is not punitive, but it is shaping, right? It's dealing with the last vestiges of selfishness, sin, whatever it is in one's life. Uh, You know, it's kind of a between place between earth and heaven. You pay your penance. You fulfill the rest of the obligations that it's required of you to be truly righteous in purgatory, and then you go to heaven. But if a loved one can flip the bill, you can automatically have the rest of your remaining debt paid for by somebody else in this life, and then boom, you go to heaven, right? That's what an indulgence was. And Luther rolls in, and what he's mad about in this is not indulgences, because if you read the 95 Theses, He supports indulgences and part of it. Like he's like, there's a place for it. He's angry at the abuse of it. So let's be clear. When we get all excited about the day that he tacked stuff onto the door, he still believes in purgatory. He still believes in indulgences. Uh, He believes that the Pope has room to see people removed from purgatory and into heaven by way of his authority. It's just, he's like, it's, it's, it's kind of a scam too. And there are people that are taking advantage of it and they're just filling the coffers. And, and by the way, just understand too, when you go back and look at Catholic theology on this, not everybody was doing that. Not everybody was abusing that. So there's a lot of nuance in this. And so all 95 points are related to just this one topic of indulgences. And I say that because, again, I'll hear people say, well, those 95 theses are all about the gospel and about salvation and about grace and about faith and about scripture. And I'm like, it's not about any of those things. It's just about indulgences. And it's just about the abuse of indulgences. And in there, it supports the proper use of indulgences. And therefore, it's supporting the idea that there's a purgatory. And even in this, it's supporting a somewhat backing of the Pope if the Pope is doing his job right. And so from this, we want to just simply understand that what was going on that day wasn't the Reformation. Uh, it wasn't even an assault on all the things of the Catholic Church. It was it was challenging one thing that was being abused in some places, and Luther wanted to get it back on track. And, and even from that, you could say, had he succeeded— had he been able to start a conversation that said, hey, we got to lock this stuff down and and do a better job of this and not allow these abuses, we might not have had a Protestant Reformation. He might have been like, sweet. Because here's what I also do know about human nature, right? He puts this up there. It becomes a debate and a fight. It kind of spills over from being an academy debate to pretty soon it becomes a debate of personalities. It's Luther versus others. And then from that, once you're fired up, once somebody is kind of 
started a fight with you and you're fired up, you start to pull in a lot more debris. That's one of the biggest lessons I had to learn as a pastor is as soon as somebody disagrees with you on one point, it can become three points and five points and 10 points very quickly. And pretty soon you start defining yourself as being the opposite of the other side. And I think that's in part what Luther kind of engages in. And I'm not trying to say, I think he's all that in a can of spam. And I'm not trying to say he was a bad guy that was just motivated by frustration. I'm just saying there's a humanness in there that I totally understand. And so over the course of time, then pretty soon Luther is defining himself kind of as the contrarian to many things in the Catholic church, but it started out as a contrarian to one thing only partly abused and in there at the time that he writes it, he's also very much Catholic in the process of that. Eventually, though, what happens with Luther, right, is he starts kind of going, well, what about faith? And what about grace? And what about all these other abuses? And even then there, he risks his own abuses where he's like, James is a book of the Bible that sounds too works oriented. We should carve it out. Right. So even he starts to engage in things like, well, let's start cutting up the Bible a little bit to to get to my theological goal. And if I don't think that sounds like it's my theology enough, it can be dropped from the Bible. Right. So Luther had his own problems. Now, eventually he rolls back around. He's like, "Okay, we can we can keep James after all, you know, but but it's just that kind of nature of things where he's engaged in a fight. And sometimes when you're engaged in a fight, you just start benchmarking off against all the other things and it just grows and grows and grows. And that's a little bit the nature of the Reformation as well. In other words, Luther wasn't a perfect guy. He was a bit anti-Semitic. He definitely had some level of grudge that was held. And I know what it's like to be in a religious debate with people that are different than you. And then you start drafting documentation as it relates to the people you're having a debate with that you differ with. You start drafting your material, again, just in opposition to what you're coming out of, not in a vacuum, not like if I was starting from day one, square one, what would I see? But no, I see these abuses here, so I'm going to overcompensate those abuses with these ideas over here. And that's a bit the Reformation. And maybe that leads into the next thing where out of this whole thing, eventually it erupts. Luther is in trouble. Uh, The Protestant Reformation gets underway. And then we have these statements like sola scriptura, sola grata, sola fide, sola Christos, you know, like, like these different ideas of trying to say, this is how we're different than the Catholics, right? And, and one of the things in there is this idea of scripture alone that we celebrate a lot. And we go, man, this is what makes us different because they're scripture and church, so we're just scripture. Over the course of my 30 years in pastoral ministry, one of the painful realities that I, I personally had to come to is that we as Protestants, we have our own popes. We don't have one pope. We might have a hundred popes or a thousand popes, but our popes are the theologians we trust, right? And we go, we trust them so much. It's scripture plus my particular flavor of theology. So for me, my popes might be a little bit more on the reform side. For others, their popes might be on the more Arminian side. Still for others, their popes might be on the open theism side. For others, they might be on the charismatic side. For others, their popes are on the political Christian side or the Christian nationalism side or whatever it is. You pick your poison. What we tend to do is say, all right, I believe in scripture's authority, but I also, I look at this person who interprets the scripture for me and I trust them as almost equal to scripture. So what they say about scripture is, it must be what scripture says. So in that sense, we still kind of are scripture plus some other authority. We trust the authority of this person to interpret the scriptures for me and therefore it's scripture plus our version of a pope. Or maybe it's scripture plus our authorship or our authors that we really look to and trust. Now, what I want to be clear here is that I don't think that's 
wrong necessarily. This is where I want to just be fair. I go, great, you have teachers you trust, you have pastors you trust, you have theologians you trust, and everything else. I think that's awesome because God gave teachers to the church. It says that in Ephesians chapter four. That part's totally fine. Like, I dig that, right? It's to be clear, though, that what that should lead us to is a level of humility that says, you know what, we're not that different than the Catholics, right? The Catholics are saying the church has to be able to interpret the scriptures in an authoritative way, and therefore they're just acknowledging that the church and scripture bear different but equal types of authority because one is wielding the other, right? And they're speaking to it as it speaks to them. And in the Protestant tradition, I would say we're pretty much doing the same thing. So I don't think we're quite sola scriptura. I think we're, we aspire to that, and yet we default much to our teachers, right? And depending on whatever theological your tradition you're in, you default even more to those teachers. So here's another example of that. Churches have membership policies and membership systems. And usually in the membership system, it says, if you're going to become a member of this church, you're agreeing to the theology of this church. And if you don't agree to the theology of this church, but you're a member, the church could take action against you if you violate the belief structure of that church, right? That's an example of where the church has an authority and scripture has an authority that almost have a type of equality for a person that's a member in a church because they're saying, I am submitting myself to this leadership, to the doctrinal statement of this church, and if I violate that doctrinal statement, they can take action in regard to me that that can remove my membership, that can remove me from the church, that could excommunicate. And therefore, what we're saying is that doctrinal statement, which is basically systematizing the Bible, taking verses out of their direct context, reconfiguring them into a theological matrix, I'm saying that that has a type of equality that might as well be equal in authority as far as applicationally to the Bible, right? Like they're kind of both part and parcel in different way. Now, as Protestants, we get a little nervous about that. And we're like, well, that's not what we're quite saying, but but it kind of is what we're quite saying, you know? So for example, if I was at Grace Community Church under the teaching of John MacArthur and I became a member of Grace Community Church, but then I was in a small group at Grace Community Church and I started speaking in tongues, their doctrinal statement would supersede my activity of speaking in tongues and I would be excommunicated if I didn't repent of my speaking in tongues because their doctrinal statement says, I can't speak in tongues. Suddenly, while scripture affirms speaking in tongues and it never forbids me speaking in tongues, it gives order to it, structure to it, but it never forbids it, their doctrinal statement would forbid it. In that case, their doctrinal statement would be equal to scripture and would supersede my activity, even though scripture would affirm me. And that is kind of like a, like a Pope, right? It's the same concept, right? So we as Protestants, while we want to aspire to a certain thing, we're still kind of incomplete in that. And, and that's where, again, I go back to then a level of humility, just acknowledgement that, you know what? Hey, we're, we're doing our best to aspire to a thing. But when we point at the Catholic Church and they go, see, this is how they're wrong and we're right. Well, we're kind of functionally in the same kind of boat, right? Maybe the motivations are different or the drivers are a little bit different. But I think it's just, it's, it's okay to acknowledge that we sometimes give almost similar weight and authority to our churches, our leaders, our pastors, our teachers, our writers, as we do scripture. And if anything, we even acknowledge that, you know what, apart from those people speaking with that kind of authority, we may not understand the Bible as well, or we might mishandle the Bible in some context. And all the more why we go, this is an okay symbiotic relationship, and we should find that to be healthy. I think another area, as we go, we're, we're grace alone, 
where the Catholic Church is grace plus works. And I go, we are grace alone, but we acknowledge that there is a relationship where grace leads to some kind of fruitfulness, some kind of works. And if there's not works in the life of a believer, then we question whether the grace of God has really saved the believer. So in that sense, while they're like, it's grace plus works, and we go, no, for us, it's only grace, we go, but there is a relationship to works as it relates to grace, and therefore it's a symbiotic relationship. And the danger is sometimes because we cut out the idea of works and it's just grace, then the, then we have a lot of easy believism. We have a lot of people that say, you know, because I'm saved by grace, what does it matter if I do or produce or act like Jesus? Because, hey man, it's just I raised a hand, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, now I'm saved. Why do I need to do anything? And yet the Bible gives attention that, hey, we are saved by grace and we will also be assessed by what we do in this life. Right? Jesus is the one that pitches that one. The book of Revelations is, in the end, we're judged for good and bad. It doesn't say we're judged for belief and disbelief. It says we're judged for good and bad. Now, I want to be clear because now I sound very Catholic. Um, the Bible also says we're, 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 we're judged by grace and not by works. And it also says we'll be judged according to our works. It says both, right? In other words, there is a complicatedness and a complexity and 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 kind of like a, a, a tough to fully wrap our minds around thing, which then is unfortunate when we feel like we have to pick ends of a spectrum. It's either all grace and works or it's either all works or it's all grace. And it's like, well, these things can live symbiotically together. And so... Again, in the Protestant tradition of grace alone, I go, right, but this grace unlocks in us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit unlocks in us the dispositions of the Spirit, and I think that's the real fruit. More than, am I a moral person or am I a good person? It's saying, hey, am I displaying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Do I love what Jesus loves? Am I trying to do what Jesus wants me to do? That's what that that's what grace unlocks in the person and and that's to be celebrated but it's understanding that it has a relationship to what gets done so there is just as much as there's a symbiotic relationship between the authority of the church and the authority of scripture and the authority of the teacher and the authority of the bible there's a relationship between the grace of god and the fruit or works or activities of god in our lives that flow from grace and so both have a relationship and i think this idea of needing to demarcate everything all the time and say they're this so we're that misses the fact that god is a very nuanced god the bible when you read it and just a real open-eyed way is very nuanced and it sort of avoids what we tend to want to do with it which is we want to break it down systematize it uh recraft it a little bit in our image of comfort or simplicity and the bible says right that's the problem you keep trying to domesticate me and i can't be quite domesticated i think that's what's true of the word of god i think it's unleashed it's unbound and then we go no no, no but we want to put it on a leash and we want to bind it we want to put it in a little package and everything else and we forget just how it's intended to kind of avoid all of those those borders that we want to put on it right like we want to even idolize the Bible. We want to create edges for it and go, this is how it all fits into my perfect little box. And yet, again, the Bible is not bound as simply as that, right? And I even bring this up a little bit because, again, one of the things I made fun of about the Reformation Day is that even the Catholic Church for 365 years have not practiced indulgences. But every year when we put up a picture of Luther tacking that stuff to the door, it's this record of wrong, right? It's reminding the Catholic Church, we, we, we left you, we dumped you a long time ago. 505 years ago, he did that. We dumped you 
under 500 years ago, right? Uh, and and ever since then, we're going to keep reminding you of this thing that nobody does anymore, right? It, it, it's like when I see friends get upset when they go, man, why are people holding me accountable for what happened with slavery or what happened with uh, North American tribes and the displacement and manifest destiny? Why am I still getting blamed for that? I'm like, well, we turn around and blame the Catholic Church every single year for something that they haven't done for three and a half centuries, you know? And to me, that's keeping a record of wrong when somebody's actually already taken the steps to make it right and we keep bringing it up and bringing it up as a commemorative. Like, hey, do you remember how cool that was? Remember how you guys used to do that? And even though you've not done it for a long time, we're gonna keep talking about how you used to do it and we're gonna keep throwing it in your face and that's why we're not dating you anymore, right? And I go, that's kind of the tragic thing because I think more than ever, the job of us as Christians in our world today is to find agreement where we can have an agreement, find peace where we can make peace, and certainly, while there may be differences, and it's okay to talk about those differences with love and grace, it's not cool to bring up stuff that people have said, man, we were wrong. That We don't do that anymore because that's unhealthy, right? Like none of us should want to do that, much less celebrate that, right? And that's my heart. Maybe that's where it comes into being the everyday missionary. I believe we as Christians should be the first to run to, hey man, you're forgiven. We don't bring it up again. Like, like the indulgence thing, like, like Jesus is like, man, as far as the East is from the West. So uh, that's gone. Like, I don't even remember those sins anymore, but we're like, ah, but we bring them up every Halloween because we don't want to really celebrate Halloween. So we celebrate Reformation Day. It makes us feel real spiritual. Um, but we're throwing up an old record of wrongs that people haven't done for a long, long time. And even when you read the record of wrongs, those 95 things, the dude that wrote those at the time thought some of those things were right. He thought the players that be, some of them were right. He thought the practice there, if done right, was right. He believed there was a purgatory that you could get out of because you paid your penance and the penance should be done properly, right? So this just kind of puts it in perspective a little bit more that before we jump on to whatever mythological bandwagon of holidays we want to do, it's always good to know the history of it a little bit, know the background and be reminded of, hey man, this is a, a work in progress. Theology never stays stagnant right? It just doesn't. In fact, if you study the church for 2,000 years, if you study something as central as the cross, you will see that there have been these evolving theologies trying to understand the cross. And you know why? Because the cross still has a level of mystery and we can't fully wrap our minds around it because it's so beautiful and it's so contrary. And it's, it's this thing you have to keep looking at and working over again and again and again and again. And you never quite get it nailed down. And that's the beauty of it. This idea that we can just kind of say, this is the answer, this is the answer, this is the answer. Dust off our hands, walk away. Man, it misses the beauty of how I think... It's like a parable, like Jesus speaks a parable so that we keep chewing it up and working it over again and again and again. And you read a parable in your 20s and then you come to it in your 50s and you come to it in your 80s. That's gonna seem so different every time. That's the beauty of these things. This is why if there's anything about the reformers that I love is that they talked about always reforming, right? Always reforming. It wasn't just like be reformed and never reinvestigate. It's like every single day we should be rethinking, reimagining, reworking, and thus reforming. And so even in this discussion today, I hope it reminds us all that, you know what? All of these things are work in progress. And I'm not talking about being willy-nilly or anything like that. It's not my heart, right? But it's to say, hey, we all know less than half of everything. 
And that's why humility over pride is so key. And, and if you're hearing teachers or preachers or writers that seem like they have all the answers on everything and everybody else is just wrong on all the different topics, that should cause all the lights on your dash to flash. Just say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did it become so, so stagnant and so absolutist in that particular vein? Because if there's anything the Reformation teaches us is transformation, is change. If there's anything that is proven that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, it's that we have dozens and dozens and dozens of denominations. You know why? Because nothing's static. Everybody's looking. Everybody's asking. Everybody's curious. Everybody's changing. Everybody's growing. And instead of saying all of that is bad, maybe we can look and say, maybe all of that is good. Maybe that serves a greater potential. And if there's anything to really grow in, Instead of pointing out everybody else is wrong, maybe instead it's saying God has led us to be in this particular flavor over in this particular corner of overall Christianity, and that's okay because God likes a lot of flavors, right? God likes a lot of flavors in his church, and I should be more of a partner, even though I'm in my own little flavor nook over here, and that's okay. I find comfort and peace in my flavor nook. Uh, I should see how Jesus is working in this other flavor over here and celebrate him for that. That may not be my flavor. That's okay. But I can see where he's doing a work over there that I can celebrate over here because I know, man, God is a God of the nations. And God is a God, we're in the nation. He has a lot of different outcroppings and outposts doing a lot of different things. Things that are not on my heart, but it's on their heart. And that's exciting. Because the church is, in fact, Catholic. The word Catholic describes universal. It isn't just my theological tribe, my particular clan. No, it is so much broader than that. Because that is the power of the gospel, of the good news of grace. That God is multifaceted in his church, in the world. No one church can lay perfect claim to him. And man, that makes me grateful and that makes me humble. And I believe the more we're grateful and humble in those ways, the more we will be powerful and effective in all these different flavors, effective everyday missionaries.